You are listening to Blue Lives Radio, the voice of American law enforcement, with your host, Randy Sutton. Hello and welcome to another episode of Blue Lives Radio, the voice of American law enforcement here on the America Out Loud Network. I'm your host, Randy Sutton, retired police lieutenant, founder of the Wounded Blue, the national assistance and support organization for injured and disabled law enforcement officers. We got a great guest waiting for us in the interview room. But before we do that, I'm going to give you my view from the blue. Let's take a walk into the briefing room. Well, the war on cops continues and the political war on cops seems to get worse and worse every day. I know that if you have listened to this show, you know that one of the one of the cities that I talk about a whole lot is Minneapolis. Well, what's going on in Minneapolis is now, it's now bordering on the absurd. The Minneapolis Police Department, of course, has been hemorrhaging police officers since the woke city council has done everything possible to destroy the morale and the criminal justice system of the entire city of Minneapolis. The mayor is a goofball. The city council are absolutely radical when it comes down to their viewpoints on law enforcement. A group of citizens in the uh, last uh, year or so have actually gone to court and a court has now ruled, this was a couple months ago, that because of the lack of police officers in the Minneapolis Police Department, the city council has to hire a whole passel of officers in order to bring up the complement to what is required by city charter. So what does the city council do then? This will blow your mind. They have put forth a ballot question to the voters because they, they couldn't force this without without the voters, although you know they would do it in a heartbeat if they could. They, they want to completely disband the Minneapolis Police Department. You heard me, disband it. And they want to put in its place some bizarre, utopian type of hybrid, who knows what, to be, not have a chief, but to have 13 members of the community making these decisions about law enforcement. I have, it's, it's hard to even imagine that relatively intelligent people could come up with something so incredibly radical, but they have. And they're doubled down on the issue even though the court has ruled that they have to hire more cops, they are pushing this and they are sinking. There is a ton of money being sunk into this. Because this, this, you see, here's the, here's the reality. If they can bamboozle the public enough with disinformation and misinformation and propaganda and the anti-law enforcement, they are all racists, hunting down people to beat and to kill. If they can actually accomplish this, this will be the radical agenda 
of all radical agendas, and you can guarantee we'll be seeing this take place in many other areas. So this is, this is going to be fascinating to actually watch and see if, see if the people are dumb enough to fall for it. So there's, a, there's an article in the Police Tribune. I'm going to read a little bit of it. Now, I've been pretty critical of Minneapolis police chief. He's been pretty much of, uh, 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 he's been pretty much acquiescing to the radical left instead of standing up for his cops. So I, I, I have a, I don't really, I don't really have that much respect for him, but even he is, is just shocked at this. I'm going to read a little bit of, this is from the police tribune. Unbearable. Minneapolis police chief breaks silence on proposal to replace the police department. Chief Medaria Arredondo this week let the public know how he feels about the proposal. He broke his public silence on a charter amendment that would replace his department with a new public safety agency partly under the city council's control. You heard that right. The city council wants control of the police department. His comments that this would be wholly unbearable for any law enforcement leader came uh, as a amid a flurry of reactions from leading Democrats. Now, this is just this is if you thought that you couldn't get any weirder, the fact that the leadership of this state would actually go along with something as bizarre as this is is mind-boggling. Uh, Attorney General Keith Ellison and U.S. Representative Ilan Omar are throwing their support behind the ballot measure. Days after the governor, Tim Waltz, and U.S. Senator Andy Klobuchar spoke out in opposition. Now, let's be really clear here. Ilan Omar <laughs> is, is one of the most radical people on the squad and I don't know how anyone could possibly take a word that she says out of uh, into, into any context as something to be valued or even listened to. But Keith Ellison, Keith Ellison has been the enemy of policing for years and years and years. And the fact that he got voted in as attorney general was a travesty. And now he's showing his true colors, his true colors being as anti-law enforcement as they come. He doesn't want the police to police. So what he has done is he's now throwing his weight uh, uh, with the, the radical agenda of the Minneapolis City Council. It's absolutely astounding. Now, what will, what will the reality be should the police department become disbanded and the creation of some... It, they won't even tell you what the, what they're replacing it with. That's the bizarre reality of this. They're not saying, hey, we're, we're going to put, well, we'll put some people out there with guns, but we don't know how many, and we don't know what it's going to look like, and, and you, you, it's just, it's double talk. And yet, they have managed to pretty much gut the Minneapolis Police Department, simply by their incredible anti-law enforcement attitude, 
the policies they put into place. And as a result, the number of cops is so diminished that they don't even have the ability to answer all their 911 calls within a, a timely, a timely uh, reaction time. Well, who's suffering here? Who, the, the people, of course. Now, the violent crime rate is has gone, it's a tsunami of crime. An absolute tsunami of violent crime. Murders are up over 100%. Violent crime, sexual assaults, robberies. Well, who's suffering here? It's not the cops. The cops are doing their best to clean up this mess. It's the people who live in Minneapolis. And they're the voters. Now, here's where the rubber meets the road, people. If you are a voter in Minneapolis and you vote for this insanity, well, I, I got to tell you, there, there is an old adage about getting the government that you deserve. And if you actually vote to disband the Minneapolis Police Department and put into place this weird, utopian, bizarro kind of replacement, well, you're not going to get much sympathy from me. My guess is you're going to get no sympathy from those who will rape, pillage, destroy, and murder you. And that's the reality. And that's my view from the blue. Today, America stands at the crossroads of history. Our actions will determine the fate of our nation. Well, that journey starts here and starts now. We invite you to join us in making the ultimate difference. Subscribe to our podcast and newsletters. Turn notifications on and stay in the know. You'll find all that back at AmericaOutloud.com. Liberty and justice for all. I want to tell you about an organization that I'm going to ask you to support. It's called the Wounded Blue, and you can see it at thewoundedblue.org. They are the national assistance and support organization for injured and disabled law enforcement officers. Now, by uh, I have to tell you the truth, and that is that I am the founder of that organization and the national director. What do they do? They provide peer support for injured and disabled officers all over the United States. They have a team of dedicated police officers, all who have been shot or stabbed or beaten or run over or faced psychological trauma, and they know exactly what these men and women are going through today. It's free, of course, because this is a national nonprofit charitable organization. They don't take any fees. Nobody makes any money on this deal. This is just about helping those men and women who have sacrificed so much for their communities and their country. Check it out at thewoundedblue.org. Your support is, is really needed. These men and women uh, have been abused in ways you can't even imagine. In fact, if you got a moment, go to amazon.com and look at our documentary film called the Wounded Blue, Service, Sacrifice, Betrayed. You will be shocked. Check it out, thewoundedblue.org, and support these men and women. Thank you. Everybody is shopping online now, right? Everybody is, is 
going and getting their wares because it's convenient, it's easier. But here's the problem. I don't like giving my money to companies that simply don't go along with the values that I believe are important. I value patriotism. I value love of country. I value our police. I value our army and our navy and our military. I believe that these are really important values. And unfortunately, a lot of the big players in online shopping, they don't. They Instead, they, they promote a bunch of, of, of activists that, that truly do not even like our country. I don't like it. So... But, you know, what else are you going to do? There's pretty much just been one game in town. Well, that's changing right now. That's changing because now there is ShopToTheRight.com. Now, ShopToTheRight.com is a new endeavor, but it is it is gaining traction. For shopping online and putting your, your wares online, if you are a business, and and looking for customers that care about the country, they care about patriotism, care about values that the most of us uh, do share. And, and, and it really comes down to this. Do you want to give your money to companies that promote organizations that actually sometimes even call for the overthrow of our nation? Not me. I don't want to. Well, I never had much of a choice, but now we do. ShopToTheRight.com. You've got to check it out. Whether you are shopping or you are selling. And you're a company. Check it out. ShopToTheRight.com. Tell them Randy sent you. This is a message to all my active duty officers who are thinking about retiring. And you're going to love me because I'm going to save you tens of thousands of dollars in the future. Does that sound like a crazy promise? All right. We all know about insurance. Now, when a, when a police officer retires... They usually retire in their, you know, early 50s and they can't get onto Social Security and and collect on Medicare until they're in their 60s, right? So what do you do for insurance between, health insurance I'm talking about, between that time? I know what happened to me. When I retired, I got thrown off of my, my plan because I was now a retired cop and I had to go off on my own or the department allowed me to use their insurance, but I was paying, I'm not kidding you, damn close to $1,000 a month. I still am. $1,000 a month. And I had no choice because that, that was there were no other options out there, right? Well, yes, there is a new option. You are going to love this. It's thinbluelinebenefits.com. This is real deal, no-nonsense health insurance. Really premium plan. And I can tell you right now that if I, and I check this out, if I could have gone on to this insurance plan when I retired, I would have saved myself close to $50,000 over my retirement period since I've been retired. So listen, if you are worried about insurance, and you should be because it's crazy out there, you need to go to thinbluelinebenefits.com. This is, this is really good quality health insurance. They're all over the nation. They really care about their cops. And you do not want to miss this possible opportunity. I can tell you right now, just this week, uh, an individual who I recommended was able to retire 
was able to retire because of getting insurance through thinbluelinebenefits.com. Check it out. You don't want to miss this. Just tell them Randy sent you. With me today in the interview room with Blue Labs Radio, the voice of American law enforcement, is a sheriff up in the state of Washington. Sheriff Atkins is a 40-year veteran of the Clark County Sheriff's Office. He started his career as a patrol deputy before becoming a canine handler. He worked with his canine partner, Titan, for more than eight years, resulting in more than 300 captures. Chuck was promoted through the ranks from sergeant and commander to assistant chief of enforcement branch. He served as the gang task force sergeant and SWAT commander. Sheriff Atkins is a graduate of the FBI National Academy in Quantico, Virginia. Sheriff Atkins, thank you so much for taking the time to join me here on Blue Lives Radio, the voice of American law enforcement. Well, the pleasure is all mine. You have the, um, what's the word I'm looking for? A pleasure of, <laughs> of being the sheriff in uh, one of mo- the most liberal states in the country. And they have recently enacted a series of laws that has dramatically affected law enforcement. But before we get into that, would you tell my listeners a little bit about your career that spanned 40 years, and, uh, and then we'll get into how, how things have changed in law enforcement in the recent, recent history. You bet. Um, let me first say that uh, I have had 42 years in law enforcement here, all of it with the Clark County Sheriff's Office and all of it with the support of my wife and family that is um, the most important thing to me and have been very supportive of the career path that I chose. And um, I started fairly young. I was 22 years old when I decided to take the test. Uh, My brother was a Vancouver police officer here in the uh, great Clark County. And um, I always assumed I'd be going to work for the city of Vancouver Police Department to work with him. Um, And I rode around with him and it just so happens uh, the sheriff's office decided to give me a shot first. And uh, as I look back over those years, I see it was a great opportunity for he and I to mirror each other's professions and uh, the different roles that we played, but to be in separate agencies to where we weren't necessarily in the shadow of the other or being judged in such a way. So um, so I started young, like everybody here uh, with the uh, sheriff's office. I started as a deputy on the street answering calls for service and had such a wonderful time doing that. It was 17 years before I decided to take my first promotional exam. And the reason for that was um, the sheriff's office is, was even smaller then, is fairly small now in comparison to some, you know, we have about 150 deputies here. Um, But at that time, um, I just found that being a canine handler on the street, being a young SWAT operator, um, those were things that really excited me. And as a supervisor, you kind of lost sight of that a little bit, or you didn't get to play as much as I might say, or be first in the door. And, um, And so there was a time though, when one of my supervisors said, hey, we got a lot of time invested in you. Why don't you give some of that back and start thinking about promoting? And that kind of started my rise. And um, yeah, it was a little unsure at first as a young sergeant. Um, I'd been on the job 17 years when I became the sergeant. 
Uh, luckily for me, and in this agency, anytime you get a promotion, you go back to patrol, you learn your boots on the ground, uh, importance of whatever role you're in. And luckily for me though, um, there was a gang, an opening for a brand new gang task force uh, in our community and I was selected to that. And I've just been blessed as, as I've moved through the ranks, I've always been able to go back to special operations and have spent you know, the last 25 years of my career before I retired in 2012 um, in special operations at a command level, having spent 25 years on the SWAT team. And, and so I just had a wide range of experiences that, you know, you can only imagine the stories and um, the fun that you can have doing that, the heartaches, the, you name it, but it gave me a broad view of the sheriff's office. And, and, but I did decide after 35 years that uh, it was time to retire and maybe get a fresh perspective. And it didn't take me long um, to realize that I'd always said to myself, I really wanted to leave the office in better hands than when I came to it. And I wasn't so sure I'd done that when I decided to leave. But it was a time that I needed, I think, to recover a little bit. And um, with the support of my wife, we decided to run for sheriff. And uh, so I had kind of a two and a half year break with a 16 month campaign. And so now I'm in year seven of being the sheriff here. And uh, uh, I, I wasn't quite so sure that, or, or let, me, let me rephrase that. I didn't expect to see the last two years of my career kind of in the environment that we're in right now. But, you know, as an old SWAT operator, sometimes in the worst of times, you, you uh, wish you weren't there. But in those worst of times, you can't imagine being anywhere else. And that's kind of where I'm at right now. Interesting, really interesting. So you, you had a two and a half year break. I'm sure that was a, a time in your life that um, you reflected and that you did a lot of soul searching. Because I know I, running a campaign is, wow, what a yes, <laughs> what a challenge. I can't imagine people that run them while they're working. I was glad that I was off, you know, so right. time to do it and do it right. Well, and, and let's, let's talk about that for just a moment, because you're an elected sheriff. Correct. There are, there, there are two major titles of police leadership in the United States, and that is elected sheriffs and chiefs of police. And what we have seen, at least from my observation points, is that when you are the sheriff, you have more autonomy in that you are not answering to the political whims of elected officials. You, 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 now you're still, you still, you know, have to deal with the political whims of the people, but at least you can't get diselected or thrown out of office if somebody in political power doesn't like what you're doing. True. So when you, you deal with both, you deal with both police leaders and, and, and other sheriffs. How have you seen, especially in the last few years with all of the incredible political manipulations and, and uh, machinations that have taken place, how have you seen the two types of leadership um, deal with these changes? Um, well, I guess it depends on the independent, um, the different chiefs that I have. I have six chiefs within my county and one tribal chief uh, for seven total. And so, as you said earlier, you know, they're at the whim of their city council, city manager, they're hired. And if they don't follow um, 
the direction that they're being told to go, well, they're not going to be around long. And it really makes, I, I've seen it and experienced it uh, through my brother who worked for a city police agency that um, they don't have quite the latitude to do things the way that they choose to do it. And as the sheriff, um, I didn't realize it so much when I was an operational deputy, but as the sheriff and playing that political role, even though I'm really not a politician, uh, at least I said that seven years ago, today I'm probably more politician than I ever wanted to be, but uh, I realized it was the importance of the role to get what I needed for my, my folks. But what I did like about it was I was elected by the people and they were the ones that were gonna make that decision of whether they liked me, they liked the decisions I was making, and whether they were going to keep me on for the next four years or not. And so, um, I mean, you don't take that lightly. It isn't a power grab that that you can, you know, just beat people up with. I do still have to work with that county council and that county manager who, even though they can't really tell me what to do with the money, they're the ones that give me that money. And if, I, if I'm not doing the right things to get that money uh, and play in the game to some extent, um, then I'm not providing for my agency what they need. And I've really seen that really manifest itself in some of the social unrest and the situations that are going on around us. Earlier, you mentioned that, you know, being in one of the liberal states, and we are very liberal. Uh, the Southwest corner where I'm at is, um, is not so liberal, but we are a small uh, area uh, in comparison to the King County, Seattle, northern part of the, the state that really dictates what happens. And I'm sandwiched between that with the city of Portland, uh, Portland, Oregon, which is a very liberal council there as well. And um, I'm pretty sure you and anybody else that is listening to this has seen what has been going on in Portland. And that really shows the difference between, in my opinion, um, a jurisdiction being run by a sheriff or a city police that has to kowtow to the city council. Exactly, exactly. And we're going to get, I want to get into Portland in momentarily. Uh, I spent quite a bit of time up there actually talking with Portland police officers during the, the height of the unrest. And, um, and what's happening there is heartbreaking to me. It it's, is. So let's talk about your, your, your philosophy is pretty clear. You're, you're a hands-on sheriff. Uh, you believe in providing the best support for your deputies and for, and, and for the mission. So let's talk about how the laws have changed so dramatically recently. And, and let's first start off with, can you explain so that the listeners know just how radical the changes have been. Yeah, you know, it started, I want to go back a little bit. It started with, you know, the legalization of marijuana, which in and of itself was something as a young cop and what I experienced throughout my career that I didn't think I would ever see. But that is so minor in comparison to what we're seeing today. I mean, some of the drug laws have changed so much in this state that if it's personal possession, meth, heroin, cocaine, it's not a crime. Now it's still a federal crime and there's still actions that we can take. However, they're not punished for it. And so that in and of itself is crazy. And then we look at the police reform 
the legislators uh, in our count in our state decided that, and and the way that they speak it, it's very clear that they feel that law enforcement is just too aggressive, that we must run around out there every day just uh, willy nilly beating people up, shooting people, doing things that are way out of line, and um, and that we're just abusing uh, our force on people every day, all day long. And that's so, so not the truth. But the way the bills are written, that's clearly what they're trying to eliminate. They're trying to make it very clear that we have very little interaction with the community so that we then don't have to use force on them because our presence is there. Now, to me, that's so out of whack. You know, community-oriented policing, Community policing has been something that we've all stressed to be more interactive with our community and to be there with them. And, um, and so one of the biggest pieces of the new legislation is uh, how you use force and only can use force when you have probable cause for an arrest. Uh, and that force is not defined by, uh, you know, less lethal uh, on any continuum as to what that force is. It's merely hands-on. And sometimes mere presence is a use of force. And you cannot do that unless you have PC. Well, anybody that's listening to this knows we work under you know, reasonable suspicion, uh, cause. Um, we don't do everything we do based on probable cause on, the, on the, the first second end of the situation. But the way they've written the laws, I can't even detain you to have a question and investigate you if you choose just to tell me to F off and walk away. All right, let, let's let's talk about this for just a second. Did so these these laws that were that were that have been put into effect by the state legislature clearly to me it seems like there was no law enforcement input. I, can you shed some light on that? Yes, they would say that there was, and there was uh, some last minute conversations only because our local associations, the Washington Association of Police Chiefs and Sheriffs, and uh, Wacops and all these other groups are going, oh, wait a minute. Hey, here's what we're seeing and here's what we're hearing. And we tried as best we could to minimize those impacts, but they really didn't hear us out. And, you know, as they push forward to pass these laws and make them immediate for us, they realized with the conversations that we had that there were a lot of areas that they didn't really because they don't understand law enforcement and they've never worked the streets, they didn't understand the impacts of what it was that they were passing, to be honest with you. And I wanted to say they're unintentional consequences, but the more I talk with some of them, I think they were intentional consequences that, yeah, they knew exactly what they were doing when um, they eliminated our ability, you know, Terry stops, conversations with people, um, basing it all around probable cause which we all know we don't have the second we walk into something and it really has tied our hands. We can't even help the mentally ill, the, the fire department to help hold a person down by force that isn't committing a crime uh, to get them into a gurney so we can get them to a hospital because that's an illegal use of force right now in the state of Washington. That's insanity. It's, it's total insanity. insanity. Is, there, is there any, and then your governor signs it into law. I thought, okay, wait a minute. Okay, there's some goofy state legislators. They're, you know, creating some crazy laws. But at least the governor uh, would have the common sense to say, no, this we can't do this. But he went just went along with the program. 
Absolutely. And we have been putting a ton of pressure on um, Governor Inslee and have finally uh, sent them through our organizations and independent sheriffs uh, all throughout the state um, some basic questions to clarify the law. Because when we say this is what the law says, they're going, well, that's not what we intended it for it to say. But we're not going to go back into session and make immediate fixes. We're going to clarify that through an attorney general's uh, opinion of definitions and what this stuff truly means. However, that's great. But the attorney general, from the day that those laws came into effect and I was expected to train and implement within my community, the attorney general was going to send out clarification information and they had to do it within the next year. So we're gonna work for a, you know, the better part of a year all of us trying to interpret these things different ways, and we can't even get uh, some good straight guidance from our own attorney general's office. And finally got a letter from them just the other day indicating, yes, we're gonna, we received your basic six questions that cover the areas of most concern. And, but the in-depth analysis that we're gonna have to put to this, we most likely won't have an answer for you until the next legislative session, which, They've already indicated that they're bringing much a bunch more bills our way to to reform police. So more more police reform bills. Exactly, exactly. So no, I, we're in a big circle. When, when I talk about the, the the term police reform bills, I consider them police revenge bills because that's what it seems to me that they the the political leadership is is so misguided in what their thought processes are. In, in consideration of police that it's they're just enacting laws as as a, a an act of revenge against law enforcement and making it impossible to do the job well that's certainly how i it certainly reads that way to me whether they uh, they don't verbalize it quite that way but they certainly in these laws make it very clear that they don't trust us and and that's you know that's one of the trust pieces huge and, you know, as we talk a little bit uh, here soon about the Portland situation and what's going on there, right, you know, right across the bridge. I mean, it's not even a, a stone's throw from where I'm sitting right now. It seems like, you know, the river's right there and we're right into Portland. Um, the reason why things work a little differently here is because of the trust that we have built over the time I've been here and I have witnessed and I've been party to it and uh, that support. Uh, makes a huge difference in how we run things here in Clark County. Well, that's a great segue into Portland. I was, as I said, I spent quite a bit of time up there. In fact, I, I was asked to address the rapid response team. I spent, mm. uh, I spent a day with them after, this is just before they, they uh, um, all decided to disengage completely and, and, and quit the job. Let, you, have you have you been asked to supplement the Portland Police Department at times? We have. And at the start, way back, seems like forever ago, a year when it started and it was just night after night after night, we, we had all of our rapid response team and, and folks available to them. That became an issue since it was across the state line and the city uh, attorneys in Oregon decided that they couldn't indemnify in any way Washington agencies coming over. 
So that really put us in a bad position in that we knew lawsuits would be coming and we were party to a bunch of them already. And that my county and my council would be on the hook for that without any help from the state of Oregon. Um, so what we did do is we pulled some of that everyday use out and made it very clear that um, if, if they're in a situation where they're being overrun and they need uh, mutual aid, we will come, but I can't be part of a pre-planned daily, nightly event process, which made Oregon then have to consolidate their people to make that happen. Um, it's, it's, it's incredible, absolutely incredible. Yes. When, when you're, I, I mean, that puts you in an absolutely impossible position. It does. So you want to do the right thing. You want to assist the, the officers who need the help, the street cops. And yet, because of the politics, and that's all it is, is mm -hmm. street politics, they're making it impossible for you to do that. So I want, to, I want to now kind of get into the mindset now of the way, I want to talk about the mental health of, of sure. our officers. You know, as, uh, as the founder of an organization called the Wounded Blue that assists injured and disabled officers, whether those injuries are physical or emotional, I've seen a tremendous rise in the post-traumatic stress injuries that we are coming across. How are you dealing with that issue when it comes down to your own people? You know, we have a robust um, EAP here. Employee Assistance Program and peer counselors have been back in the mid late 70s. I was one of one, one of our first peer counselors here in recognizing critical incident uh, debriefs and stress and and how we deal with that. So we've had an ongoing process for years and years and years, and um, but we still lose people, and we still find that what you don't know up front. And it manifests itself later. You you hit you slap yourself for not catching it and, and giving more help to the the deputy or the officer that needed that. Um, especially those that not only were going through the problems with law enforcement, but maybe they were deployed and they came back from Afghanistan or Iraq, and um, and we weren't well versed in PTSD, you know, necessarily from a, a lay cops position. Um, and my role now as the sheriff is to make sure that we have uh, programs in place that allow deputies to go totally voluntarily, sometimes mandatorily if it's involved in officer-involved shooting, et cetera, um, to make sure that their welfare and their health is being taken care of. And it's certainly private for them, um, but it's well-trusted because we've shown that it, it stays private and it isn't you know, contingent upon their employment here. Um, as you probably know, we had a recent uh, murder of one of our deputies and that process has played deeply in how we have met um, each and every one of our officers and correctional staff. And as a sheriff, I run a jail and uh, a records management system. Um, all those people are impacted whether they're actually physically on the road or not. And we make sure that we have debriefed every one of them in broader groups, but then narrow that down to the critical incident folks that were there to make sure that they they are healthy. And we still we still miss people. Uh, you know, we're not perfect, but uh, 
we we strive really hard as a family environment here to take care of our own. That's fantastic. I I, I really appreciate that because the you know depending on where you serve will determine if if the leadership cares enough to put into action a robust either peer team or a a methodology of getting help when um, you know let's face it sheriff you you and I both know that the, this reality and that is that very often officers do not trust their administrations and so they are I lost less... you Randy. I lost you can you oh I hear you now okay yeah my I had an internet issue um, you and I both know that there are times in, in a lot of different agencies where there is a huge distrust of the administration. So dealing with that and understanding that can be a major challenge for law enforcement leadership. So yeah. it's, it's, I find it uh, very heartening that, that you are well aware of this and, and are dealing with it. Um, we don't, we're, we're getting a little short on time. I would like, okay. to, I would like to ask you this. In, the, in your opinion, where are we going? It, especially, I, I don't want to talk on a national basis. I want to talk about your particular situation as a law enforcement leader in the state of Washington. Give me your forecast for the next couple of years. Boy, if you'd asked me this years ago, I would have been able to tell you exactly what I was going to think happened in a couple of years. I'm really uncertain, but I am hopeful that of the 39 sheriffs, we, we're a solid group that are gonna continue pushing forward and we're going to um, be able to have a real impact on uh, the, the new laws that they're trying to push on us. Because the people that these are meant to protect are also seeing that it's taking three times the amount of time to deal with them, that we're not giving them the service that they need. You know, and Washington State, just so you know, you know, Washington State is the worst um, state in the United States for the number of cops per thousand population. And of the 39 counties, Clark County is the worst in the state of Washington. So our numbers are small. And so we only can have so many people to do what we need to do. And the citizens are the ones that are losing out here. And so they're starting to throw their trust towards us and their support towards us. And we're already getting some concessions uh, from the legislators that have passed some of these laws that yes, we need to tweak them. We didn't know that it would mean this or that. And so I do see us making some inroads, but I'm telling you, if you look at California, Oregon, and Washington, we have just gone crazy with um, uh, the, the lopsidedness and the uh, direction going against law enforcement. And it's, it's gonna be a scary couple year ride, to be honest with you. But let me finish it with this. The young people coming in the door today that are coming to work for me are sharp people. They know what they're coming into and they're geared up and ready to take on that challenge. And so that's encouraging to me. And I have received some really great people from the city of Portland who have chosen to leave that organization over there and come to work on this side of the river. That's, you know, I'm, I'm glad you brought that up. I was going to, I had forgotten that I was going to ask you about that. The exodus of, of police officers in Portland. They, I was really, really impressed with the quality of the officers there. Yes. Um, I think 
I've, I don't think I've really run across any better trained and better, more highly motivated group of people, even though they have faced probably the most difficult conditions of any police agency in this country with the, with the literally the every single night attacks that occurred for over a year. Yep. So you're, you're at least being able to harvest some of those men and women and, and bring them into the fold, if you will, of, but, but they're, they're, they're going from the frying pan. I don't know if it's into the fire, but they're, they're kind of like going from one frying pan to another frying pan. Well, you know what they know about coming here to Clark County is where they came from. They had a city council that didn't support them. They had city councils that, that, that people on that council that absolutely hate the police and are doing everything they can to defund them, wreck them, ruin them, make them unsafe, et cetera. Over here, my council trust in law enforcement to make the law enforcement decisions. And they know they can't tell me what I need to do. And so they get out of my way and they expect me to protect them. When those rioters come across the bridge and we set up uh, a welcoming party for them and we actually put people in jail, which they didn't happen in Portland, it didn't take them long to realize, A, Vancouver's small, it doesn't have as much easy uh, access to ruin big, expensive buildings and glass and stuff. And uh, they didn't get quite the press notoriety as they do downtown Portland, where they can do all sorts of crazy things. And when they actually went to jail and didn't get out right away, they, they you know, when you went into the Internet and looked at uh, their blogs, they're going, hey, just stay out of Vancouver. Let's just stick in Portland. At least we know we're not going to jail. Amazing. Absolutely amazing. Well, you know, Sheriff, I, I want to thank you so much for taking some time to talk to me here on Blue Lives Radio. I, I really, I feel for um, your situation and the situation that all of your deputies are now facing, making it easier to prosecute the officers and and literally cutting the 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 legs out from under the law enforcement community for actually enforcing the laws putting them in harm's way. So these are very, very challenging times for you. And I appreciate you taking the time to talk with me a little bit about, uh, about these issues that you're facing. My pleasure. So we'll, uh, we'll talk again soon because I have a feeling that you and I are going to have some other conversations in the future. Right. We need to talk about decertification and the training commission actually doing investigations uh, independent of the local police chief and or sheriff. Oh, okay. That's good. That'll be, that'll be the next topic. I love it. All right. I have got an announcement to make. This is such a cool concept and I'm so proud to be a part of it. It, it, If you, if you have not heard of pickleball, you are going to, it is the fastest growing sport in America. And now the man who is known as King Pickle, Billy McGee, who owns Wild World of Pickleball, presents the Great American Pickleball Marathon. This is going to be wild. And the beautiful thing is, it is going to honor the men and women of law enforcement who paid this ultimate sacrifice during 9-11. In case you don't know, that was the most deadly day in law enforcement history. 72 police officers were killed. Now, This is the 20th anniversary of 9-11, and we want to make sure that it is not forgotten. So Billy McGee 
of the wild world of pickleball is going to be hosting a 12-hour marathon in Tampa, Florida, and he's looking to bring in pickleball players from all over the country. It's going to be on uh, on television, and you can join and you can watch. There are going to be celebrities there from the NFL, from all kinds of different um, all kinds of different mediums, and it is going to be incredible. And the best thing about this is it is going to raise money and awareness for the Wounded Blue, the National Assistance and Support Organization for Injured and Disabled Officers. It's the organization that I founded and has helped thousands of police officers throughout the nation. So here's what I want you to do. If you are a pickleball player, you have got to register for this. You've got to watch it. You've got to participate in it. Go to, I'm going to spell it out for you, B as in Baker, M as in Mary, W as in William, O as in Ocean, P as in Peter, B as in Baker.com. That's B-M-W-O-P-B. That is Billy McGee's World of Pickleball.com. You've got to participate in this. It is going to be a whole lot of fun. It's going to honor the sacrifices of those who gave their lives in 9-11. It is going to allow us to celebrate those people and the sacrifices that they made. And it's going to make sure that we don't forget what happened on 9-11. And at the same time, it's going to raise funds for the Wounded Blue and raise awareness as well. So go to this this website, BMWOPB, Billy McGee's Wild World of Pickleball.com. And hopefully I will see you there because I will be in Tampa participating. So I've never played pickleball. If you guys want to laugh, go ahead and watch this little deal. You're going to have a great time. If you have any questions, contact me, Randy, at thewoundedblue.org. For my active duty officers out there, and actually for all of my officers out there, privacy is one of our biggest issues right now with the threats towards law enforcement increasing every single day with officers being doxxed, with officers being tracked down and harassed. You've got to defend yourself. Now, I had no idea. I had no idea how easy it is to find someone on the Internet. There are literally websites out there that have all of your information and any puke in the world who's got who can search a website can find you you got to defend yourself i know that i'm doing that right now and the only way is officerprivacy.com it's officerprivacy.com here's what they do you contract with them and the, it, the cost is minimal it's a monthly cost it's a, a, a one-time setup fee cheap cheap inexpensive especially for what you get and what you get is peace of mind officerprivacy.com goes through all of these websites and removes your personal information and continues to check it to make sure that it's not going back up there. So I'm telling you, this is peace of mind that is worth much more than than what they charge you for it. Uh, I'm doing it. You should do it. Go to officerprivacy.com. Don't wait for something terrible to happen to you or your family. Protect yourself right now. OfficerPrivacy.com
End of Watch with Randy Sutton. Each week here on Blue Lives Radio, the voice of American law enforcement, we pay our respects to the men and women of the profession who have made the ultimate sacrifice and given their lives in the line of duty. I have a number of names to read this week, most due to the COVID issue. Police Officer Brandon Ard, Orange Beach Police Department, Alabama. Police Officer Brandon Ard died from complications as a result of contracting COVID-19 and a presumed exposure while assigned to beach patrol. Officer Ard was a U.S. Navy veteran, served with the Orange Beach Police for 24 years. He is survived by his two daughters. Police Officer Ben Brandon Ard, Orange Beach Police Department, Alabama. End of watch Thursday, August 26, 2021. Trooper Sean C. Rick of the Florida Highway Patrol. Trooper Sean Rick died as a result of contracting COVID-19 in the line of duty while assigned to Troop 1. Trooper Rick had served with the Florida Highway Patrol for 17 years. He is survived by his wife and two children. Trooper Sean C. Rick, Florida Highway Patrol, end of watch Saturday, August 28, 2021. Captain Joseph Manning, Wayne County Sheriff's Office, Georgia. Captain Joe Manning died as a result of contracting COVID-19 while he was assigned to the Wayne County Jail. Captain Manning served with the Wayne County Sheriff's Office for over 31 years. He is survived by his wife, two sons, daughter, and eight grandchildren. Captain Joseph Manning, Wayne County Sheriff's Office, Georgia, end of watch, Wednesday, August 25th, 2021. Deputy First Class William Diaz, Lee County Sheriff's Office, Florida. Deputy First Class William Diaz died from complications as a result of contracting COVID-19 in the line of duty. Deputy Diaz served at Lee County Sheriff's Office for three years. He is survived by his wife and child. Deputy First Class William Diaz, Lee County Sheriff's Office, Florida, and to watch Tuesday, August 31st, 2021. Sergeant Clay Garrison, Port of Galveston Police Department, Texas. Sergeant Clay Garrison died from complications as a result of contracting COVID-19 in the line of duty. Sergeant Garrison served with the Port Galveston Police Department for 17 years. He is survived by his wife and two children. Sergeant Clay Garrison, Port of Galveston Police Department, Texas. End of watch. Wednesday, August 25th, 2021. Border Patrol Agent Chad A. McBroom, Border Patrol. Border Patrol Agent Chad McBroom died from complications as a result of contracting COVID-19. Agent McBroom served with the United States Border Patrol for over 24 years. He is survived by his wife, three daughters, and a granddaughter. Border Patrol Agent Chad McBroom. U.S. Border Patrol, end of watch, Sunday, August 29th, 2021. And in the latest death of a law enforcement officer, Florida Department of Corrections Correctional Officer Trainee Whitney Cloud fatally shot during a training exercise. Florida Department of Corrections died in the line of duty on August 26th due to an unintentional discharge during firearms training. The incident occurred at the Harry K. Singletary Training Academy at the Correctional Institution. Officer Trainee Whitney Cloud, August 26th, end of watch. Each one of these officers gave their lives serving and protecting the people of their communities. May they rest in peace. Thanks so much for joining me 
Again this week on Blue Lives Radio, the voice of American law enforcement on the America Out Loud Network. I ask a couple things. One, if you want to connect with me, go to my Facebook page at the voice of American law enforcement. Feel free to message me there if you have comments or questions. If you have a story that you think I should cover, then connect with me there as well. Follow me on Twitter, at LT Randy Sutton. I even have Instagram now, LT Randy Sutton. I know, I know, I'm finally coming into the 21st century when it comes down to social media. I also ask that you support the Wounded Blue. Go to, the, go to www.thewoundedblue.org. This is the National Assistance and Support Organization for Injured and Disabled Law Enforcement Officers. If you are a law enforcement officer and you're struggling and you have issues that you want to talk about with people who understand and will keep it completely confidential, connect with us either on our Facebook page, The Wounded Blue, or on our website, thewoundedblue.org, or connect with me personally, Randy at thewoundedblue.org. There are people that care about you. Your blue family does exist. And finally, America, your police are not your enemy. Your police are there to protect you. They care about you. And even though they're being demonized and vilified, I know that most of you believe in those who serve, and I thank you for that. Don't be afraid to come up to a cop and say, hey, man, Thanks for your service. It goes a long, long way. Thanks again. We'll see you.